So how many of you who are here this morning know the story of a guy by the name of Edward Kimball? Raise your hands. Any of you? It wouldn't surprise me if you don't know a whole lot about him. I didn't know a whole lot about him until just a couple of weeks ago. I actually went on Wikipedia to see if I could find out a little more about him. And there were four Edward Kimballs on there and he wasn't one of them. So he wasn't even there. Um, I wish I knew more about this guy. I really do. But let me tell you what I do know. This guy, Edward Kimball, he was born sometime in the early 1800s in America. He accepted Christ at some point early on in his life. And then he came to a point where he really felt impressed by God to be a Sunday school teacher for teenagers in his local church in Boston. Beyond that, there's not a whole lot I know. I don't know what he did for a living. I don't know if he felt successful in what he did in life. I, I don't know if uh, he had any hopes or dreams for the future. I don't know if, if uh, when he breathed his last breath, if he wondered if he had, made, he had made a kingdom difference for God in his life or not. His photo doesn't hang prominently on the wall of some institution to remind and inspire others of the life that he lived. So you may be thinking, okay, well then Dave, why are we talking about him today? That's a good question. And I'm going to get to that in a few moments. As we look at the scripture today, I think feeds in perfectly to what, I ha- do, what little I do know about this man's life. Over the last month, we have been walking through this small Old Testament book in the Bible called Haggai. Uh, I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to turn there. We're going to be there one more Sunday today. Um, if you find the beginning of the New Testament, if you can find Matthew and turn left a few pages, hopefully you'll find it. Or you can go to gracetucson.org slash Bible and find it there. The book of Haggai, as we've been walking through it through, over this past month, has taught us a lot. It's taught us about the attention and the time that we give to God. It's taught us about listening carefully to God and following His direction. It's taught to us about prioritizing God's kingdom work above our own kingdoms in this world. And it's also shown us how much our God, the creator of the universe, values the role that you and I play in it. Today we're going to see a message that God gave centuries ago to a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was a governor of Judah back in around 5600 BC. Zerubbabel spent much of his life as a ruler distracted. But he wanted to obey God. He wanted to leave a legacy. He wanted to make a kingdom difference. And God promised to use him to give his life significance despite all the challenges that Zerubbabel faced. But yet, when you look at his life, what you see is, through much of it, no doubt he felt like a failure. He had to have asked himself the question, what real difference am I making on this planet? It brings me to a question that I want you to wrestle with this morning. Maybe you've thought about this question before. Maybe you haven't. But the question is this. Do you ever wonder if your life will leave a legacy? Have any significance or meaning at all after you're gone? I mean, do you ever hope or think about if there will be anything of your life that will continue on after you're gone? Through the lives that you've touched or the things that you've committed your time or your resources to? You know, I think most all of us, if not all of us in this room would say, Yeah, Dave, I I want my life to count for something. I want to know by the time I breathe my last breath that there was a reason why I was here. That perhaps God had a task, an idea in mind, or maybe a few of them, and I was able to accomplish that for God. 
I want to be able to hear when I see God face to face one day that I did what he asked of me. To know that I played some part in God's grander story. You know, when you think about legacy, it's, not, it's something I think a lot of us we think about, particularly as we get into middle age and older. But it's not something we talk about all that much, is it? To be honest with you, in my, all of my years as pastor uh, of a church, whether it's here or in other places, I could count on probably one hand the number of times someone has talked with me about the legacy they wanted to leave outside of the times when the people were on their deathbeds. And then I hear it all the time. It's easy to want to discuss these things when you're on your deathbed, but guess what? By the time you're there, there's not a whole lot you can do about it, is there? Your ultimate value in life, your role in God's kingdom, it may or may not be obvious to you today. Most of us, I am convinced, have no idea the full extent to which God can and will use us if we're obedient. However, we can rest assured knowing this, that our lives, yours and mine, have eternal significance when they are simply lived in obedience. I want to say that again. Your life and mine, our lives, every one of us in this room, they all have eternal significance. Not just a handful of us who happen to do something that catches someone's eye, but every single one of us, if, if they are lived in daily, simple obedience to the calling of God. In those moments when God impresses on your heart to do something, no matter how big or how small, that we are obedient. If having a legacy, if having a life that matters, if that matters to you, then I would like to move up the conversation from your deathbed to now, if that's okay. Some of you, I won't even be around for some of you when you kick the bucket. I'll be long gone. This morning, as I said, we're in Haggai. We're going to be in Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 20. And let me just kind of, before we read these, these few verses at the very end of this book, let me just kind of give you a... a a recap of where we've been so far in this series. Maybe you've missed a Sunday or two. We started this series by looking at the very beginning of Haggai. And we saw in the first chapter that there were these people who had come back to Jerusalem and they had on their minds their own priorities in life. They didn't have God's kingdom priorities in mind. And God speaks to them in that moment through the prophet Haggai and says, I know you think your priorities in life are important. I want my kingdom priorities to trump those. And so there was a shift that started to happen as all these people who had arrived back in Jerusalem started thinking about God's bigger kingdom purpose for their lives. Then week two, we looked at the very beginning of chapter two, right? And what we saw is as they faced this monumentous task of rebuilding Jerusalem, of rebuilding this temple that was in ruins, um, God actually caused them in that moment of feeling overwhelmed to remember the past, right? To not look, just look at the future and how scary it looks, but to look behind them in the rearview mirror and say, God, what have you done in our lives up until now to prove your love, to prove your good, to prove that you're faithful? And so they spend time remembering, and that fills them with faith and courage to press on and move forward. Then last week, we looked at verses 10 through 19 of chapter 2, and we saw that with all that in mind, one important reminder God gives the prophet Haggai to his people and to us today is that in the midst of all of our plans, all the things that we're doing in this life, if we don't keep 
going on our knees and praying to God and asking God, God, here's my ideas of what I think is I need to be doing with my time, what I need to be doing with my day, what I, the decision I think I need to make in this situation or that. If we don't take the time in God's presence, then we can totally miss out on what God has for us in this life. So last week, God reminded us that the importance of being on our knees and with every decision that we, if it has of any value and importance at all, that we take that time on our knees to hear what God has to say about it. And now today we wrap up this whole thing with the last few verses of this last chapter of Haggai, verses 20 through 23, and we look at what God says about looking forward to the future. Listen to this. On that same day, December 18th, the Lord sent the second message to Haggai. Tell Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, that I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow royal thrones and destroy the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overturn their chariots and riders. The horses will fall and their riders will kill each other. But when this happens, said the Lord of heaven's armies, I will honor you, Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, my servant. I will make you like a signet ring on my finger, says the Lord, for I have chosen you. I, the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken. God, I ask that you would speak to us this morning as we unpack this. You know, when you hear these verses, it I, I wouldn't surprise me if they kind of gloss over for you. If you hear them and think, well, I, Dave, I don't really know how this is going to speak to me today. You know, this message, these few verses here, was given by God through the prophet Haggai to this guy named Zerubbabel that I was just talking about a little bit earlier. Zerubbabel was the leader of the nation at the time. He was the governor of Judah. And once you know a little bit about this guy, you're going to see how encouraging, how life-changing these few verses were in this guy's life. Zerubbabel was most likely the grandson of a king by the name of Jehoiakim who was the young guy who was in power in Judah when the Babylonians came in and just decimated everything. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came in. He took Jehoiakim captive. He was only only 18 years old at the time as king. He had only been reigning as king for three months, but the Bible says his, his heart was filled with evil. And God used this pagan Babylonian king to come in and remove him from power. But not only that, to destroy the temple, this beautiful uh, reminder of God's faithfulness and goodness in the middle of the city, and to destroy the whole city, and to cart off all those who survived that onslaught back as slaves into Babylon. Now, Zerubbabel, this, this guy we're talking about today, he was born into captivity. He was born as a slave in Babylon. Now, he was royalty, right? He was the grandson of a king. His act, but his name actually means, Zerubbabel, it actually means the offspring of Babylon. That's what his name means. Now, my guess is, when Zerubbabel started growing up from being a child to a young man and realized who he was, that he was the grandson of a king, he must have asked himself, what kind of royalty is this? I'm a, I'm, I'm, I should be a king and I am a slave to a king in a foreign country. I'm sure he must have thought to himself at times, you know what, I, was, I picked the wrong time to be born on this planet, right? There are limited historical accounts about this guy's life. 
But there is one from ancient Persian writings that talk about this guy, Zerubbabel, and talk about how when the Babylonians were actually destroyed by another empire, the Persian Empire, this Persian Empire came into Babylon, took over, wiped out uh, all, the, uh, all the Babylonians that um, were in power, the, 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 the government. And this Persian king noticed this guy named Zerubbabel. He noticed that he was full of wisdom. And there came this point where Zerubbabel goes to this Persian king, this new guy in power, and says, I have an idea. What would you think about us not being slaves anymore? (laughs) What would you think about us actually, those of us who want to go, us going back to Jerusalem, rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple with your blessing? We'd still be under your power, under your control. What, What do you think? And believe it or not, God's hand was on this guy, and the Persian king said, sure. Not only that... I'll make sure that you have all the resources that you need to do what you need to do. So he goes back to Jerusalem. And he had heard the stories, no doubt, from his grandfather of what had happened. He, I mean, there were no newspaper accounts back in that day. There, were, there was no Facebook you could go on to see pictures of what Jerusalem looks like. All he knew were the accounts of people who were perhaps dead and gone. Imagine what this guy Zerubbabel thinks when he arrives back into town. And he sees this city that he's heard about, just a pile of rocks. Just a pile of rubble. I mean, I can't imagine how devastated he must have been when he saw with his own eyes just how monumentous his task was in front of him. I mean, the the closest picture I can have in my mind to what he must have saw that day were some of the pictures I have seen uh, of some of the Euro- cities in Europe during, after World War II was over as Hitler had come through and just decimated places like London and Dresden to just a pile of sticks and rocks. Or perhaps what you've seen on the news at times here in recent months from Syria in places like Damascus and Aleppo where these once grand cities are just nothing but a pile of concrete and rebar. No doubt... Zerubbabel gets back into town. And and to make it worse, it's not just that he would have seen something like this, but he would have seen something like this that had been this way for over 50 years. I mean, this would have, for Zerubbabel, picture being in in his shoes for a moment. This would have been like Zerubbabel deciding to rebuild one of the cities in Europe after World War II, but doing it in 2017 and the city just lying in ruins as a pile of rubble for over 50 years. That's what he encounters. So he gets there, and he, no doubt he's overwhelmed, but he, gets, he knows God's got a call in his life. He knows that God said, your kingdom purpose, Zerubbabel, is to rebuild my temple, to make it like it once was, to make it even better than it once was. And he gets there, and he thinks about Solomon and how, you know, the stories of how wise Solomon was and how wealthy he was, and he had all these skilled laborers, and he's, Zerubbabel is looking around thinking, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? I don't have any skilled workers. I've got these refugees. I've got these ex-slaves with me who are just trying to figure out how to survive. How are we going to do this job? But if you remember, in the very first week, he just kind of buckles in. He's like, we're going to get this done. We're going to get this temple built. He spends all this time clearing off all this rubble that had been sitting there for over 50 years. He actually lays the foundation for the temple. But by this point, the, the challenges that he's facing are so intense from the people who were living around trying to stop him, that Zerubbabel just throws up his hands and gives up. He's like, you know what, I can't do this. 
Obviously, God must not have called me to this because this is way too hard. And so he goes back to just doing the things that he felt comfortable doing. And all the people do the same. And 16 years later, nothing's changed. When God taps him on the shoulder in Haggai chapter 1 and says, Zerubbabel, what are you doing? I've, I've, I've given you a task. I've, I've called you to something bigger than yourself. I want you to make a kingdom difference. I want you to get that temple built. Remember that nice pretty slab in town that you started building a, a temple on? What happened? And to Zerubbabel's credit, he says, you know what, God, you're right. I'm going to do something about this. Now, probably by this, probably when God spoke to him the first time about this, after 16 years of doing nothing, he probably felt a little bit like a failure, didn't he? He probably thought, you know what? I don't know if I'm cut out for this. He could have thought, you know what? I'm pretty weak and ineffective. I have limited resources. I'm under the authority of a foreign king who's calling all the shots. I'm pretty vulnerable. I I have no real military power to defend myself. Yet to his credit, when God speaks, Zerubbabel says, okay, God, I'll, I'll follow you. And God says to him, Zerubbabel, I will make sure that you, every obstacle in your path will be cleared. In verse 22, God says to Zerubbabel, I'll make sure you can do what I want you to do. I'll overthrow every power that stands in your way. In verses 6 through 9, God promises this guy Every resource that he's needed, it will be there. And he even tells Zerubbabel, yeah, I know you've been thinking about Solomon and how wonderful that temple was, but what I'm going to have you do is going to be even greater than that because you haven't turned from me. You're being obedient to me. And in verse 23, I, I love this. You might have totally missed this when it was read a few moments ago. God says to Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you like a signet ring on my finger. A signet ring. Any of you know what a signet ring is? Any idea? A signet ring, they don't have a whole lot of meaning in a digital world like the ones we live in. Most of the time, signet rings are just decoration. But back, you know, before the, the age we're living in now, kings and dignitaries would wear these rings and they would have this seal on the top of the ring. Uh, and basically what they would do with that ring is when there was an official document that was from the king's hand, say, the king would take a blob of wax and pour it on that document and then stick his signet ring in it to mark his seal on that document. And what that told everyone who questioned, it said, the king's hand was on this document. The king says, this is his decree, this is the law. People could walk around with this document and they were kept safe because the signet ring of the king was marked on it. And these signet rings have been used throughout history. I mean, there's evidence of the, the pharaohs of ancient Egypt using these things. There, se- at least seven books of the Old Testament talk about signet rings, all the way back to the book of Genesis. So these signet rings, they designated authority. They, they spoke to honor and ownership and power. And the signet ring, the, the mark of that ring was a guarantee of the safety of the king. Now, before Zerubbabel's grandfather was removed from power, Jeremiah spoke to his grandfather. And God said through Jeremiah, I see you, Jehoiakim, like my signet ring, and I'm yanking it off my finger. In other words, God was saying to him, you're done. I'm done with you. 
Zerubbabel would have known this story. But in this tender reversal, I want you to see here, God tells Zerubbabel, I will honor you. I will honor your obedience, and I will put you like a signet ring on my finger once again. That verse might not mean a whole lot to you, but I promise you, that verse meant tons to this young guy who was faced with such a daunting challenge. Now, in our lives today, we can sense God directing us at times in subtle ways, but that doesn't mean that you and I are always obedient, right? Sometimes God calls us to do things that are really difficult, like God called Zerubbabel to. And we can procrastinate, we can avoid them, we, we can come up with all these excuses to, to put off what God's called us to do. And sometimes, other times, God calls us to little things, things that don't seem all that significant. And our tendency at times can be to think, ah, this really isn't worth my time. Someone else can do this. I, I don't know that I really need to do this. I don't know that this really matters what God is asking of me. And some of those times when God prompts us to, to do something, to take a step, to serve in some way, we can ignore it because it doesn't seem big enough. But I'm convinced that if we knew the why behind every ask that God gives us, if we knew every time God touched us on the shoulder and said, I want you to go do this or that, if we knew why, if we knew what God had in mind by having us do that, if we knew what kind of a kingdom difference we would make by being faithful, I bet you we wouldn't say no so easily. I bet it would be easy to follow and to obey. But we don't know, do we? We don't always know what God has in mind. We just know what he's asked of us. We have no idea how the time that we might spend in a children's classroom on a Sunday morning, would, how that would make a difference at all. We might think, well, what, what real kingdom difference am I making by serving refreshments in the breezeway on a hot summer's day on a Sunday here? Or serving behind the tech booth? Or working in the church office in the middle of the week folding bulletins? I mean, really? Is that making that much of a difference? God reminds us here It doesn't matter how big or how small the task. When God puts it on your heart, when God puts that ask before you, you will have eternal significance. You may never see the impact, the chain reaction that started when you did that task. But God does. We can trust that if we're listening, if we're staying sensitive to God, if we're putting His kingdom first every single day, if we're obeying His promptings, no matter how big, or how small, our lives will have eternal significance. You know, we don't know a whole lot about Zerubbabel's life outside of this book. We know that he did finish the temple. We know from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Bible that he helped restore Judah to its former glory. But that's about it. These closing verses of Haggai can encourage us to not give up on God's plans for our lives. We don't have to worry if our lives have significance as long as we're listening and being obedient to God. We know even less about this guy named Edward Kimball that I started this whole message with a few minutes ago. 
As I said, we know he was a Sunday school teacher in Boston about 150 years ago. But there is one other piece of information that I do know about him that I haven't told you yet that I think might mean something to you. You see, as he was a Sunday school teacher, one day a young boy by the name of Dwight walked into his class. Dwight was a a, a teenager, 17 years old. He had just moved from another part of the country. His mom and dad had kind of shaken their hands of him and just said, you know what, go live with your uncle in Boston. He has a shoe shop out there. Maybe you can work for him. Maybe you can live for him for a while and kind of find your way. And so he moves out there to go work in his uncle's shoe shop. And when he gets there, his uncle says, okay, here's the deal. If you're going to live here, you're going to come to church with us. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that one. And so Dwight goes to church, probably with his arms crossed, thinking, I'm not going to listen to any of this stuff. And he finds himself in Edward Kimball's class. I bet you've heard of Dwight. His full name was Dwight L. Moody, one of the greatest evangelists of our nation just after the Civil War, who led thousands of people to Christ, whose life still has an impact today, seeing people come to Christ as a result of the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. One of the people that Dwight led to Christ as a result of Edward Kimball was a guy by the name of Wilbur Chapman. Wilbur Chapman came to Christ and he became an evangelist like D.L. Moody did. And Wilbur Chapman had the privilege one day of hanging out with a drunk pro baseball player by the name of Billy Sunday. He was a loud, raucous guy who no one really wanted to get too close to. But let me tell you, when Wilbur helped lead Billy Sunday to Christ, he did a total 180. He was so on fire for God. I mean, there are pictures of this guy and how he was pounding the pulpit and how he was leading people to Christ. And one of the people that Billy Sunday led to Christ was a guy by the name of Mordecai. Mordecai Ham. And he kind of followed in Billy Sunday's footsteps. He got a little truck and he painted it and said he was a traveling evangelist and he would speak from town to town in the south telling people about Jesus in the early part of this century. And one day, he led a 16-year-old boy to Christ, a boy who had been turned away from faith by a youth group because they said he was too worldly. That boy, you may have heard of him, his name was Billy Graham. Billy Graham has preached to billions of people over the years, and has led over three million people to Christ. Billy Graham has personally influenced the lives of every president since the Truman administration. Now, you might hear this story this morning and you think, you know what, I'll never be a Billy Graham, Dave. There's no point in comparing me to him. I, I, I understand that. You may never see yourself as a Billy Sunday either. I, I know I certainly won't. But I bet you can see yourself in Edward Kimball's shoes. Someone who just felt a call to trust God and to, and to make a kingdom difference in his own community, in his own church, and truly did. You see, Edward Kimball, when he realized he wasn't really making an impact in Dwight's life, he actually trusted God. He felt like God was putting on his heart one day to show up at Dwight's uncle's shoe shop and talk to D.L. Moody. And even as he got to the door of the shoe shop, the account goes, he looked inside the window and he said to himself, I'm not going to do this. 
this kid is going to think I'm crazy. He's not going to listen to a thing I say. He's just, I'm just going to burn this bridge rather than, than help it. But he went in that day and he trusted God and he told him about the unconditional love of Jesus and he walked out wondering, God, I don't know what that was all about. I hope something came of it. And that afternoon, D.L. Moody accepted Jesus. When Billy Graham dies, I'm sure he won't have any doubt that he's made a kingdom difference in this world. Edward Kimball probably had a question in his mind. Well, it, will anything that I did really ever matter? But in God's eyes, both of these men had a profound legacy. Edward Kimball had a legacy that he couldn't have dreamed would be possible because of his simple obedience to God that day when he walked into that shoe shop. What will be your story? Any idea? Will you have a legacy? The question is, will you, like Edward Kimball and like Zerubbabel, will you be obedient? Will you be obedient in the big asks that God puts on you like he did with Zerubbabel and say, God, I know this, I know this, you put this on my heart. I don't know how I can do this. God, this seems way bigger than me. You should pick someone else, but I'm going to trust you and I'm going to be faithful. Maybe you'll be like an Edward Kimball and you'll, you'll, you'll be faithful and you'll follow and you'll do the things that God's called you to do. And you may question yourself day after day, God, is anything I'm doing matter at all? Only later to find out in heaven, oh yeah, oh yeah. Our lives will have eternal significance if they are lived in simple obedience. Part of your story of significance may be to give of yourself through some of the ministries of grace through this season of your life. God's called us, all of us, to an important work here. He's called us to be an authentic, transparent community in northwest Tucson. A community that are just committed to making ourselves into fully devoted followers of Jesus. Followers who spread God's love, who share Christ's unconditional love and grace to Tucson and even beyond Tucson into the world. Each one of you in one of these seats today, God's brought here. You're not here by accident. And I believe that God's brought you here for a purpose that's bigger than yourself. God wants to use you and your gifts and your talents, the things he has put into you to make a kingdom difference right here. And the question is, are you willing to do it? Are you willing to say yes when God taps you on the shoulder and gives you your next orders? Part of the fruit of the work of Grace Community Church we're going to see in just a moment is several more people go into the waters of baptism and commit their lives to Christ before you today and ask you to hold them accountable in the months and the years to come. This month here at Grace, we've been asking God if part of that kingdom work God's calling us to in this season involves us building too, to expand our campus, to prepare for the future, to, so that more ministry can happen here and more lives can be touched. This morning, I've asked Lucy Hill, who is one of our children's ministry directors, to join me and share a little bit from her heart. You know, Lucy's been here longer than I have, and she has been faithfully serving in that, those rooms 
a few yards from here, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, pouring into the lives of our children and bringing some of you along with her to help pour into the lives of our kids. And I want to thank you for what you do. But I also want, yeah. But I also know that over the last few months, you and your sister, Melanie, who's also uh, directing our children's ministry, you've been a part of a, a team here at Grace that have been trying to figure out, as we grow, what do we do with, with our space? How, what's the best use of our resources? Could you tell us a little bit from your heart about what that process has been like for you and what you have learned? Sure. Thank you. Um, so... We've had some space issues in children's ministry for a couple of years. We've been kind of wrestling with this. How do we expand a little bit um, and make things a little more comfortable on Sunday mornings, more comfortable during our big events like we just came off of VBS? Um, so it's been a conversation that's been happening in different areas of the church, but the most beautiful thing that happened a couple of months ago was a volunteer group that came together to talk about how we were going to expand the building. And these volunteers came in with all kinds of different expertise. I mean, some of them have dealt with space issues in businesses for a long time. Some of them just are financial gurus and know how to do fundraising. Some of them have just gone through church building campaigns in their church and just felt very called to, hey, let's look at this together and try to figure this out. But let's use the gifts that we have and that we can bring to this conversation. And so when Melanie and I sat down with them, we were really, really um, amazed at how the conversation started happening quickly and, and how we were very listened to for our needs, but then how they said, but there's other needs here too. It's not just the kids. And we are quick to say that. Mel and I are quick to say it's not just our needs in children's ministry, but we shared our current space during the week with very um, with several different ministries that come in during the week and, and use our space during the week. So it wasn't just about us, but of course, to us, it's very the children are very important. That's what's forefront in our mind. So they listen to us, but then they brought in all the ministry leaders that they could think of who might have some space needs and talk to them. And then this plan started developing about how we can. Um, Make sure that we're building a space to be used that will not be out of line with the size of our sanctuary. We, we don't need a, a huge, huge building out there where we can pack in tons and tons of kids if we don't have space in here for families and adults and students to worship on Sunday morning. So they were great about coming up with the numbers and crunching the numbers of a size that works with this size of our sanctuary. But then, you know, Grace does not have a prayer room. We need some place where people can come and pray. And oftentimes we have prayer vigils that have to take place in a different room. Sometimes that kicks us out of one of our rooms. So, so all these things also as we expand, as hopefully, you know, more people can come because we are expanding, our offices need a little extra space. So they were able to look at the whole thing, not just our area, but come up with a plan that we feel very confident is going to make a difference in not just the lives of children, but in the lives of family, community, and Grace can continue to make a kingdom difference. Thanks, Lucy. So after this service is done, maybe around 10, 12, 15, those of you who want to stick around, we'll, we're going to kind of talk through this a little bit more and pray together and just discern God's will on this important matter. 
But let me, let's take a moment to just go before God here as a community and lift these concerns up to Him. And um, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we are so thankful for what you're doing among us. But we are thankful as we look back in the rearview mirror of grace and see over two decades of how you have used this place to make a kingdom difference. Lord, we can't count the number of people who have accepted Christ here, who have gone on the waters of baptism here, who have rededicated their lives to you here, who have made decisions to take a next step in their faith journey as a result of being here. And God, we ask that you would call us to all be a part of something bigger than ourselves here in the future as we partner with you to do this week after week, year after year in the days coming, in the days ahead. Lord, we pray that many people will come to experience you firsthand as a result of this place called grace. God, we also recognize that in our lives that there, there's way more that you're doing besides just this church community. Lord, you've placed us in businesses and on golf uh, teams and so many other places in our community where we are touching the lives of other people. Help us, Lord, to recognize each day as we start our day how you're calling us to make a kingdom difference in that day. To not see those tasks that you place before us as small or insignificant, but as truly meaningful and potentially life-changing just as it was for D.L. Moody many years ago. Lord, through this series, we've been coming to understand that you want to build your kingdom here. And so, Lord, we close out our time of prayer before you by reciting the Lord's Prayer. Some of you, maybe, maybe you know this. You can speak it out loud with me. If you don't, that's totally okay. Just listen in silence to these words and allow them to bless you as it speaks to where we are even here today in the tasks that we have before us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.